0: Welcome to this episode of The Essential Church Podcast, an ongoing conversation about some of the most important issues facing the local church today. I'm your host, Andrew Arndt, joined today by Pastor Glenn Packiam. And we have a special guest with us today. Uh, Some of you will know uh, Dr. Preston Sprinkle. Um, Preston is the founder and the director of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And we recently had him out here in the Springs for a one-day leaders forum to talk about all things to do with faith, sexuality, gender, The challenges that that presents to the church and how the church can rise up in greater Christ-likeness in the culture. It was a fabulous day together, so we asked him if he'd be willing to appear on the podcast, and he said yes, so welcome, Preston.
1: And here I am. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Preston, today was a fabulous day. There's so much good stuff that you shared. And you've talked about about today a number of times that it's really been an eight-year kind of process for you of walking with all of this. So I'd love it if you'd start the podcast today just by taking us into your journey. What got you started on this? and um and bring us up to speed on where you're at today and what you're working on
1: sure yeah thank you uh, my journey began as an academic journey it was just uh you know I, I do love theology and i love to figure out controversial topics i love to write books and so it began as just yet another book project figuring out what the bible says about homosexuality and and uh it started as an academic journey and there's a lot of academic challenges a lot of books you gotta read mm-hmm. and people you gotta engage with but Early on, I began to see how 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 human I well how much the church needs to humanize this conversation. Mm-hmm. Yep. I started to get to know a lot of gay and lesbian people and hear their stories, and it was just my my heart was really just ripped inside and out. I mean, just hearing people say, "I've never met a Christian that was just kind to me. I've never um, I, I, if I show up to church, I'm scared to death." You know, I've been hollered at, screamed at, yelled at, and stuff, and and shamed and shunned. So. Um, yeah. So the long, long story short, my eight-year journey has been trying to navigate the, the tension between uh, being, you know, faithful to what the Bible says about marriage and sexuality, and yet radically loving people, especially people who have been marginalized by the church for their sexuality, which is mm. uh, literally millions of LGBT people in this country. Mm-hmm. And your book,
2: "People to Be Loved," is that the book that came out of that?
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah. So that came out in 2015, and it's a it's a blend of uh, well, it's kind of I call it like a you know a, a a pastoral exegetical approach to this question. You yeah. Know, it goes deep deep into scriptures and even historical background, but it also j- it wrestles with, you know, some of the nitty-gritty pastoral relational questions mm. that mm. that people have. So I
0: yeah. think part of what I love about your work is that you're trying really hard to raise the level of conversation both around the biblical side of it mm-hmm. and around the sort of the practical human side of it, but then also the pastoral side. So you've got yeah. all three of those yeah. things working. One of the statements you made today that I loved was you said That we need to get the bible right Mm -hmm. and it seems like you kind of walk into that concern a lot in environments that you walk into like hey preston are we going to talk theology at any point are you going to do some exegesis here we just going to talk about being nice yeah and you really did you did a deep dive on some exegesis today which was awesome but you said we need to get the bible right but if we get love wrong then we are wrong yeah could you unpack that statement for us
1: yeah because i mean i experienced this type of christian and you all know this type of christian you probably have names in your head that you know they they're, they're so concerned to get the truth right that it's almost like love takes a distant second mm. you know it's like well you know i'm going to be held accountable for the truth but and, and it's not wrong to love in fact yeah maybe you should love but love is kind of like icing on the cake rather than <laughs> intricately <laughs> related to the yeah. truth so that yeah. if you're not embodying the gospel love of jesus you're not actually embodying the truth of jesus because truth is love love is truth so yeah i just i, I do want to destroy that dichotomy we, li- we live in this world of dichotomies and binaries that Mm. are just oftentimes destroyed by scripture of Mm. either grace or truth either love or you know follow the scriptures and and this conversation typically wherever i go and talk about this you have people that and i even said this today you know will will naturally gravitate towards one end or the other they really want to get the Mm. truth right the scriptures right and they really struggle with the grace side, or their natural default is is grace and compassion. And yeah. they hear stories of people getting kicked out of churches and stuff, and they're just like, "I guess I'm supposed to hold to the traditional view, but I'm going to hold my nose and do it," you know? Where um, I'm like, "No, you can celebrate the truth of Scripture and radically embody the compassion of Jesus in a way that's going to." make people think that, you know, are are you gay-affirming? Like, why do you have all these gay friends, you know? (laughs) Well, I
2: I love how you point out, you know, love is at the essence, not only of who God is, the triune God and all that, but also the essence of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And you also point out that actually this is meant to shape our strategy in a way. Mm -hmm. You know, you said today, you talked about the scripture from Romans, uh, the kindness of God leads us yeah. to repentance, and so the statement that I love that you've said a number of times is, "Our truth will not be heard until our grace is yeah. felt." I mean, talk yeah. about that.
1: That statement, yeah, I do. It has become kind of a, a mantra, and it's, it's. I see people share it on social media more and more. So I, I might need to find a new phrase, but <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It. It, it does. I. I think. If you can boil so much of my approach to this conversation down, it, it does come down to that. And it's really that that phrase, our truth will not be heard until our grace is felt. It's subtly direct, directed at the person who's really passionate about the theology. They're concerned about sure. theological drift. Mm. They're really like, this is the, the non-negotiables of theology. Yeah. And I want to speak into that person's life because I'm that person. Yeah. Yeah. I'm naturally just... I can sit in the ivory tower all day long and just show, you know, study books and bombard people, with, and I, that's how I'm naturally wired. And mm. but I've realized over the years that even psychologically, you can, there's studies done on this that if that's all you do is hit the intellect, 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 and people aren't experiencing your, your your love, your grace, your humanity, then what you're saying, whether it's true or not, is almost it just doesn't have the power behind it. So the, yeah. all that to say, the person that's deeply concerned with Theological integrity all the more needs to be mm. radically compassionate and, and and reaching after those who have been marginalized by the church in this conversation. Otherwise, the truth isn't gonna. It's never gonna go anywhere. It's not gonna be effective.
2: And then and then the other part of this, I guess, that you said uh, last night, which I thought was really important. In fact, we were talking about it with a group from our our crew here at New Life was. Um, the stories of other people it doesn't actually shape our theology, but it shapes the way we do theology. It shapes our yeah. approach to theology. Yes. So so maybe pivot a little bit here and talk about you know your commitment to the text and how you had to go back to the text yeah. to say, this is what I want to use as my basis for deciding my yeah. view here.
1: Yeah, so my my approach to theology in general, and it's gotten me into trouble in some circles, is to go where the text leads. <laughs> To be so biblically centered that you go where the Bible actually leads, and it's—I don't know what to do. It's been one of the one of the most profound mysteries Mm. in my journey in Christianity is when you are so passionate to go where the text leads, you make Bible-believing Christians really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) I don't—I don't know what to do with that, you know. And it's because I've done that. As you know, you can Google me or whatever. I mean, I've done that with other topics and. Given piles of biblical justification for my belief, it doesn't mean that means it's right. But I am trying to be biblical here, and it's almost like a deer caught in the headlights. Like, why are you quoting? Like, you're being unbiblical. I still get that. Like, well, I quoted about 1,300 passages. Which one do you disagree with? You know? So, um, yeah. So w- when it came to this conversation, I'm like, look, I'm willing to be affirming. I will eager I will be on the front lines of the pride parade if that's where the text leads. Hmm. I'm not pre-committed. Hmm to the traditional view. I'm pre-committed to the Bible. And mm. as, as I talked about last night, even today, I mean, I, I grew up with all these assumptions about homosexuality and what the Bible says, and I was ignorant on a lot of stuff. I yeah. just had this assumption and didn't know why I believed it. And so, yeah, when I went when I came at the scriptures, I came at it with as fair of a shake as I possibly could. Um, and yet, yeah. <laughs> having done that, man, I, I, I think the so-called traditional view of marriage is... and uh, I'll get in trouble but you'll get the emails <laughs> I think it's I, I think it's clearly yeah. in scripture I don't think it's hidden under some rock in numbers 29 or something like I think this God has not made this unambiguous that marriage is a union between a, a male and a female and that all sexual relations outside that covenant bond are are considered sin and yeah. that raises loads of pastoral opportunities and questions but um yeah, I, I think that that's from beginning to end not Ambiguous.
0: Preston, I'd love if you'd just unpack that just a little bit more. I think that one of the places where this conversation gets a little bit mired for people is that when they think of the homosexuality conversation, they think of the so-called clobber passages in the scriptures. And one of the things that you do consistently is that you've taken that kind of wide angle approach to the scriptures and said, this is bigger than six or seven clobber passages. This is about a theme that's running through the scripture. So could you unpack that for our listeners just a little bit? Talk about some of those big things that you see happening yeah. in the scripture that have led you to the historical, traditional view of Christian marriage.
1: That, that's so good, and that's so true. People race to the, the big six, the clobber passages that say, don't have gay sex, whatever. And, and honestly, in my theological journey, it was probably a few years where that's, all, that's where my focus was. You know, and I think it was probably N.T. Wright who who um, doesn't really even talk into this conversation too much, but he's the one that really pointed out. And and I, once he pointed out, I saw others pointed out that you know the the very meaning of marriage is written into the very script of creation in Genesis one and two. And Genesis one and two, if you've been studying the Bible for more than ten minutes, you know is just fundamental to kind of the shape of the of a Christian worldview. And and um, and yeah, you know. The question, the ultimate question, isn't ten, can two people the same sex get married. The ultimate question is what is marriage. Yeah, it's like people assume there's one agreed upon definition of marriage, and if you were to have people define that on the streets, they would say something like, you know, it's a, two adults fall in love and they commit to each other. Basically, it's a, a union between two consenting adults. That's one definition of marriage. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's particularly biblical. I think the Bible does uh, t- take a view that marriage is, by definition, the one flesh union between two sexually different persons, male and female. And that, mm. that unity between difference is just, it, it just radiates from the creation account. Um, it's, it's interwoven throughout the whole creation account so that if, if you, if you, if you, if you um, Untangle the def- if if you disagree with that definition of marriage, you start to unravel the whole fabric of the creation account. This is again something NT Wright does so well at pointing out. So yeah, before I even get to Leviticus and Romans and Sodom and Gomorrah, whatever, all those passages, we need to ask ourselves three questions: What's the definition of marriage? Mm-hmm. Don't assume a definition. You have to you have to you have to state your definition and and prove it. And then I ask people, okay, what's your definition of marriage? Secondly, where did you get that definition from? When I do that, I lose 98% of people I'm talking to. Right. <laughs> I'm sometimes really yep. smart people. They're like, I don't, what do you mean? I, hmm. Well, you, you said, you know, marriage, some people say marriage is between two consenting humans. That's one option. But where, do you even know where you got that from? Yeah. I, it's in the second Humanist Manifesto of 1973. That, <laughs> I mean, it's there um, um, and it's legalized in America. So, are you getting it from the Supreme Court in 2015? Humanist man, like it comes from somewhere. It's not just mm. some free floating. Um, I can show you from Scripture that marriage, as I read Scripture, is a union between two sexually different persons. When I say marriage, that's what marriage means. Beginning, with, that, and these are really basic categories, but. Right many people, really smart people that has never even- It's not crossed their mind. No. Yeah. it didn't cross my mind for the first several years of my journey.
2: <laughs> Well, and, and you know, you mentioned kind of, okay, we all bring lenses to the way we sure. interpret Scripture. So someone could say, well, Preston, that's just you. You came with a little bit of this predisposition, <laughs> this bias. But you point out, look, actually, there are very few things that the Church throughout its 2,000-year yes. history globally, historically, yeah. uh, agrees on. And actually, this is one of those things <laughs> yeah. that there's tremendous Christian agreement on. Uh, in, in fact, almost
1: unanimous. Uh, for 2,000 yes. years, there has been. We have no evidence written evidence from church history that any branch of Christendom, and I'm talking Catholics, Protestants, Greek, Orthodox, Coptic, I mean, Mm -hmm. just cast that net as broadly as you want. We have no evidence that any Christian um, has defined marriage differently or has said, I think, same-sex sexual relationships are a valid uh, relationship. And some people say, well, that's because they never had to deal with it. Oh, my gosh, they were dealing with this from the Middle Ages. It was so so pervasive yeah. same sex relationships especially in monasteries and stuff that you know people had to write whole books on yeah. there's a whole th- a book called the book of sodom <laughs> yeah. a, a priest that was so concerned about the widespread you know thing going on so this is this is nothing new the church has has encountered so and yet histor- globally historically the church has never had a different position that doesn't mean mm-hmm. Because it's, it's, it's right. Per se. it's right. But it's not yeah. just. Oh, that's just your interpretation. But it's been two thousand years. We
0: should give. We should give it. Like you said, it's nothing to sneeze at. Yeah. totally. Yeah, it, yeah. It's a
1: safeguard of
2: humility mm-hmm. to say maybe it's actually arrogance to depart from mm-hmm. it, yeah. and not arrogance to reinforce it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to plug here Preston's website, thecenterforfaith.com. There's loads of resources. There's loads of papers that you've written mm-hmm. that are actually yeah. free downloads and then books and curriculum stuff that you, that you can get for free. Uh, many of these textual questions and even the historical ones, you, you went into some deep uh, examples from history, even from the first century of relationships that work, uh, mutual relationships of homosexuality. And so answering some of the mm-hmm. objections that people say, oh, this didn't exist in the first century and blah, blah, blah. So to our listeners out there saying, tell me more, I want to learn more, go to Preston's website and yeah. uh, and do that.
0: Yeah, I want to pivot here. That's awesome. I want to pivot here and just ask you a question. So uh, just you, you're a, a Christian who assumes the historical position uh, in human sexuality, marriage, et cetera, et cetera. One of the things that I thought was fascinating that you brought up today was a study that you cited uh, where you mentioned that 84% of LGBTQ people were raised in the church. Yeah. Isn't that Fascinating crazy? just to hear that. Yeah. But then you said that 51% of them left the church after 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so we're tracking with you so far, but then this just really blew yeah. my mind. And I would like you to speak to this. Um, when you asked the question, why did those 51% leave the church? only 3% of them left because of theology. Isn't that crazy? So only 3% of them left because the church held the historic position on sexuality, 97% left because of some kind of relational breakdown or malfunction. So it seems like the issue is not necessarily in the church. It's not necessarily our theology. It might be more what we embody to other people, how we oh, treat people, and our misunderstanding it. around all of this. So, uh, take a couple of minutes and just speak to that. What you're seeing on that front, yeah,
1: that's it. Yeah, it, yeah, it's that blew me away too. I mean, I we keep hearing from multiple different kind of sources, you know, that it's a church's theology that's driving gay people away, and until we change our theology of marriage, then you know they won't come back, and that's just that's it's just factually not true. And so that survey, I mean, that survey was of LGBT people. This isn't. A bunch of straight people yeah, saying, right. "I think this." It, yeah. it was seventeen hundred and twelve <laughs> LGBT people from all fifty states. Like it was a widespread, thorough s- survey, and uh, the title of the book that released that survey is called "Us versus Us" <laughs> oh. <laughs> to try to break down this assumption that there's this massive chasm between the gay community and the Christian community, yeah. and um, yeah, that's just that's just not not true. Well, and um, it's fascinating
0: because the, the flip side of it is that to go on with the study is that you mentioned that seventy six percent of yeah. LGBTQ people who have said that they left the church would that's consider returning to the church as long as the church made some changes. But very few of them said it was theolo- theological changes that needed yeah. to be made. It was more about relational yeah. changes and more about maybe ethos yeah. than yep. about yep. what's con- confessed in the church.
1: Eight percent said I'm not going go to go even consider going back to the church unless they change unless they believe in gay marriage. You know, eight percent. Eight percent. So then, 92 are like the main thing that needs a change is relationship. I want to mm. feel loved. I want to dialogue. I want to mm. um, don't try to change my orientation is one yeah. thing, which which you know that raises some questions, but. Um, yeah, it's it, it's 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 not our theology that's driving gay people away from the church. It's how, how we, we have held them. to our theology. Yeah. yeah, how we have held. Yeah, yeah, the manner in which it's held. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Which leads to you. You give some great sort of relational do's and don'ts, and and we don't have to go through the list. But one of the ones that stood out to me, I think you phrased it: "Be the reward that Jesus yeah. promises," and that has to do with how we talk about singleness and celibacy. Yeah. Speak mm-hmm. to that for a moment.
1: Matthew, or sorry, Mark, chapter ten, verse twenty-nine to thirty, I believe it is. Where Jesus um, is telling his disciples, Peter and the, the other apostles, who have given up everything to follow Jesus, mm. and he kind of rebukes them a little. It's kind of an, un, a passive aggressive rebuke. Well, not really passive, just pretty <laughs> aggressive, <laughs> actually. That's aggressive, but, aggressive. Yeah, pretty aggressive, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got he basically says like, don't don't think you got the short end of the stick. Oh, mm. we gave up everything. Mm. He says you have gotten back, you know, eternal life, yeah. but also. In this present age, homes and brothers and fathers and mothers, meaning the church community, is yes. a profound reward for those yes. who have given up these things. Now, as I think of the the, the kind of person who would fit that category of so who's given up mm. fathers and mothers and families and and mm. sons and daughters and marriages and loved, you know, it would be celibate yeah. gay Christians yeah. who yeah. are saying, "I love Jesus." Mm. I'm attracted to the same sex. I don't think it's okay to act on this. so I'm committing to celibacy. If they're willing to make that radical commitment, then we should, we straight people, families should come alongside and also match that radical commitment mm. by saying we will become that reward of being your brothers and fathers and mothers and sisters. Most, if not all same sex attracted Christians, I know who believe in a traditional sexual ethic, their main question isn't, is the traditional ethic biblical? That's pretty easy to show. I'll just, some people disagree, but I, it's not a hard case to make. The marriage is between a man and a woman from the Bible. The biggest question isn't is it true? It's is it livable? Yeah, can we do this? Mm. How, what does this mean? What does this act? How do I live this way? And the answer is you can't by yourself. Right. You know? Yeah. We can't with, and that's just sanctification 101. We are designed to be sanctified in community, and especially with something like you know uh celibacy or singleness like mm. again a- every single gay person i know have told has told me i can live without sex but i can't live without love and intimacy and until the church understands the difference i'm going to have a hard time living
0: this conversation doesn't work unless the church decides to be the church mm. in the fullest sense that it can That's possibly it. be so i want you to take a couple minutes here and coach the pastors that are listening to this mm-hmm. conversation. So you're teaching Christians around the country and you're interacting with a lot of leaders. Mm-hmm. I want you to give us just a handful of things that you would like to see pastors do more of yeah. that will help their churches be places that can really hold the commitment required to to be faithful to Jesus.
1: Yeah, that's good. That, that's, that's the million dollar question. Um, first of all, I'll just say my starting point is silence is not an option. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, Questions about faith, sexuality, and gender are among the most pressing ethical questions facing the church today. Mm. Few, if any, Christians aren't thinking about it on some level. Mm. I don't, it seems to me, and maybe this is too harsh, it seems kind of pastorally irresponsible to not disciple and shepherd your people in some of the most significant questions they're asking. And I, and I understand there's fears, there's all this stuff. So, uh, yeah, number one piece of advice. Well, so silence is an option. However, don't start speaking until you start studying and knowing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, read book, Read books on different sides of, of the theology. Get to know LGBT people. Talk to them. Listen to them. Even language. I mean, you spend a lot of time language, saying, look, yeah. the, the, a word like gay could
2: mean action, or it could mean attraction, could mean unwanted... (laughs) Uh, You you know, you use that phrase a lot, unwanted sexual attraction, same-sex attraction. And
1: And you get this when you start talking to people, you understand the significance of language, and how people are using terms, and Mm -hmm. even language changes through time. So yeah, understanding language, understanding your theology, understanding the pushbacks. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people out there, younger people especially, that are well studied on this topic. So Mm -hmm. while I want pastors to really maybe Lean into this more and start speaking more. Uh, you'll you'll get your. We almost said a phrase. You you'll get your Bible handed to you <laughs> if if you're not prepared. Because there's people out there that have have done some deep research on this. So prepare yourself. Um, engage LGBT people. Listen to people, and then start discipling your people in this conversation. Also, you know, when you do address sexuality, we've got to back up and integrate. Our view of sexuality into the into the whole gospel. Sometimes it's like we we preach the gospel over here, and then we talk about sex over here. And in our our sex talk is you know wait until you're married. The end. You know it's like what what is sex for? What does it mean? Um, what does it mean to have sexual integrity? What's marriage for? How to child? How does procreation relate that? I know we Protestants don't want to even talk about that, but um, there's just I think there's there's so much more gospel wrapped up in a Christian view of marriage and sexuality and even a thing like, okay, so we talked about marriage earlier, but on, on the one hand, we need to celebrate and value and define marriage correctly. On the other hand, we don't, we shouldn't idolize it either. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we, we have, I think, unintentionally or sometimes blatantly made people feel like they are incomplete or, or lesser Christian if they're not married. Right. And until you get married, life, you're just not quite there yet. And man, if you're like 30 or 32 or God forbid, 35, we need to figure out how to get you married, you know, because you're not really going to flourish as a human And we, until you're married. But then we, you know, then we'll do our devotions and read the red letters of a single savior of marital age yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who flourished more than any yes. human on earth uh, as a single man. And Paul is single. And the New Testament just, it defines marriage precisely. It celebrates marriage, but it doesn't, idolize it and what i mean by that is marriage is not essential for human flourishing Mm -hmm. and i think um we have not i don't think we've preached that. no (laughs) that
0: marriage is a thing that will pass away in the age to come which means that it's a penultimate thing it's a signpost that's pointing to something greater and we just haven't taught on that enough in the church
2: and and actually both are singleness is a signpost too because it points to this fulfillment that god offers Mm. yes so the heart of the gospel is not that single people become married (laughs) or that gay people become straight but that all of us become like jesus exactly
1: yes
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you.